There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to leadership. Discover your inspiration to lead by hearing from those who are in the trenches each day, leading themselves and leading others. We will learn about their unique leadership style and identify the shared qualities between those who do it tremendously well. Welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lead with Empower podcast is back. We are starting season two with a, a, a great friend of mine and someone I would probably say is pretty responsible for getting me involved in, not pretty responsible, very responsible, getting me involved in adventure education, experiential education. Excited to have you on. I'm glad we waited till season two. I was able to work out some of the kinks in season one. I feel a little heat right here because we have a great friend, Dr. Ted France. He is the professor in the physical education and health education department at Springfield College. He is also a co-chair of that same department. And he also does some work with youth development and research up on 263 Alden Street. Teddy, thanks for joining us for the Lead with Empower podcast. How the heck are you, my friend? Dan, it's my pleasure to join you on the podcast. I was actually, I've been, you know, we've been working on trying to find a date and I'm, I'm glad we finally got together and I'm excited to talk shop with you here. Oh, me too. And, and I'm excited that we actually have you on. Uh, we'll introduce Teddy time a little bit later in the episode, but uh, I was taking wagers from some of our mutual friends uh, about whether you would actually show up on time and we got you here a couple minutes early. It's impressive. I lost some. I lost some money this afternoon. <laughs> Let's. I hope it was to Treadwell. <laughs> it probably was. Um, it took both of us a little while to do the math, but in the fall of 1987, you enrolled or you joined Springfield College. You you were a student there, and you've been there ever since. Pretty darn impressive. How did a guy from Palmer? Massachusetts, a little small town, probably 30 minutes east of Springfield. How did you end up at Springfield College, Teddy? So for me, my, my journey to Springfield, was, it was interesting. So I was a football player, baseball player um, in high school and had been recruited to play football primarily in, at the collegiate level. A lot of Division three schools, um, Bates, Colby, Bowdoin, a um, few one double a schools, but Springfield was the closest to home and the only division two school that I really looked at did my college visits. You know, I, I went on a bunch of visits and Springfield was, a, was probably the most interesting to me because I met faculty members while I was on my visit. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that I was just there to talk football. Um, I talked with coach DeLong, who was a, the head coach, but also the, he was, a, he was a faculty member, and I got to meet Diane Potter, Dr. Gretchen Brockmeyer, um, you know, all of the different faculty members who were my mentors uh, during my undergraduate years. And it stood out to me because of the national reputation it had in physical education, recreation, leisure, and, um, you know, it seemed like the right fit for me. I felt like I, was, I belonged there on my visits. Um, you know, and so, I, yeah, I did my undergrad there. Then did my master's. I stayed for my master's degree and was the graduate teaching associate out at the outdoor center uh, East Campus. 
and you know, I pretty much at that point I was ready to go and be good and be a teacher coach. I wanted to coach football. I wanted to coach physical education, uh, do adventure education in my PE classes, and totally by chance there was a, a woman I was mentoring under who had some health issues and she took a year off and that's when Gretchen Brockmeyer asked me to take a one-year appointment and I stayed and I did um, and that's where I started you know I came when Joe came back she was getting close to retirement and she said you know you should stick around so I did and I started teaching classes and that just progressed into my doctoral work and I've been there ever since. Life for 30, it'll be 33 years come September, which is right around the corner. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and your first appointment was at East Campus, the Outdoor Adventure Center there at Springfield College, correct? So I was the director of the Outdoor Center, which includes all of the challenge coursework um, ex with external groups and internal groups. It included our outdoor pursuits class. Uh, you know it well, our yeah. eight-day eight days of camping with first year students about back then it was about 300 of them. Yeah. Um, and then camp Massasoit in the summer, which is a, a summer day camp, which is all based in outdoor education, adventure education. Um, and then that's where I started and then expanded. I started to teach in the outdoor recreation area, um, did that for about four years and then moved back home into physical education with the express, you know, the explicit focus was definitely for integrating adventure education in public schools. Yep. And that's, uh, as I touched on early uh, in Teddy's introduction, uh, his first year back in the physical education department as a professor was my sophomore year as a physical education major. And during your sophomore year, you went, uh, we, and it's probably different now, but for us, we went through four different teaching modules and it was I think it was early elementary, elementary, middle, and then high school. And Ted's module was the high school level. And it was not a traditional, what I thought was a traditional high school phys ed class. It was all, you know, at the time, I don't think we did a ton out at East Campus in your course, but it was all teaching what are referred to, depending on who you ask, as the soft skills or the essential skills, depending on which article you read. But it was all about teaching those inter and intrapersonal skills through, through activity, through play. And that was the first uh, real experience into the, the adventure experiential education. And, uh, and I guess you were going through as your first experience as well. I think we were your second module. So you might've had one, one rep under your belt at the time. <laughs> I probably didn't have it dialed in perfectly, Dan, by the uh, Definitely not. <laughs> um, and then, you know, from there, it, for again, for me personally, it was, uh, I think I had the pleasure. I don't know if it was the second, my sophomore year, or my junior year, but I got to work quite a bit with you and, uh, and John Gibney, who was a grad student at the time. Uh, you were doing some team building gigs, I think away from Springfield college on your own. And, uh, we'd always get the phone call. There was no texting or really, we didn't really email much back then either. It was yeah. like, Hey, you guys want to come up to this thing with me on, you know, Friday afternoon. And that's, uh, I think how John and I really started to cut our teeth with some of the experiential stuff. So I credit you for the last, you know, for the last 11 years of my life, kind of getting me started on that path. So 
appreciate you taking those lumps early on to get some of us going down this course. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> those were great years. It was, I mean, some of the best teaching in my career, I feel, was, was those early years where we, we, were, we made it about our learning was based in play. Yep. Our learning was based in experience, and we shared so many experiences, whether it was working youth groups or corporate groups. Um, you know, it, 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 it grounded all of us in what we were reading and studying in our classes. You know, so we lived, we lived it. We didn't yep. just teach it. We lived it. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that's one. Of, and we'll get into, I'd, I'd like to save some, because we'll get into talk some specific shop uh, about the experiential education, adventure education model uh, as we get, as we dive into it. But I want to start, Ted, obviously it's the end of August. There are thousands, millions of questions about what schools are doing, both at the collegiate level and below what athletics are doing again at the even at the professional level on down what corporations are doing give us and i know you've been involved in some of the the behind the scenes work at springfield college as far as the the start of the school year right now august 25th what's the plan of attack as it as it currently stands up at springfield college yeah so i mean I was, I was telling you earlier, Dan, so I've been, on, I've been president of the faculty senate for the last year now, and usually in the summer, there's this lull in work, and, you know, we, we, we get work done, and we move on some policy, but it's not, it's not a lot of heavy lifting. Well, I can tell you since, since probably February, March, middle of March, I've been in bi-weekly meetings every twice a week with the president, her vice, her presidential leadership team. We have faculty Senate meetings once a month. We meet with the executive committee once a month. The amount of planning and preparation going into this fall, I've never experienced an operational tempo at this level. Really? Yeah. It's wow. just, because what's happening is, is for you start making plans and you, you start preparing and you think you've got some resemblance of an operational system that you're going to begin to implement. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you. <laughs> you know, it's I, I, we're, I, we're like we were talking earlier. The only place I've ever experienced this level of ambiguity in leadership has been when I've been leading backcountry trips in the winter yeah and you're out and you've got a risk management plan you've got your trip laid out you know how many miles you're going to do per day and a you know snowstorm blizzard moves in and you, you start making changes hour by hour and that's a legitimately i've never seen that level of leading in that dynamic of an environment at this level of an organizational planning and strategic implementation yeah so right and right now the decision or the plan is to have students back on campus soon, right? Yeah. So we're we are we're we're beginning next week. We start reentry, repopulation of campus. You know as well as I do, a lot of the earlier orientation groups will come in, but it's going to be staggered. Yeah. Um, you know we've gone through all of the reassignment of classes and downsized the capacity of the rooms. We've gone through and we've looked at the curriculum and said, 
okay, what are we going to offer fully remote? What do we have to offer some level of face-to-face? And we've tried to mitigate, not tried, we've put in mitigation processes. So for me, I'll be teaching motor learning and normally I'll have 22 in there. Mm -hmm. Well, rather than teach my class twice a week with all 22 in the classroom, I'll post material online. I'll meet with 11 on Tuesday. I'll live stream that for the other 11. Then the following Thursday, the, those, the 11 that were live streaming will now come back to class and the Tuesday group will live stream. Okay. And that's, that's one strategy that, you know, you're going to see a lot of universities and colleges implement um, to, to mitigate capacity on campus. Are the have the students been given the option? And I know again, depending on who you talk to and what college or university, or even again below that at the, at the public schools and private schools, um, have the students at Springfield been given an option of, hey, you can return and be fully, you know, virtual or distant learning, or it's on campus, or or that's it. Like, tell us a little bit about what choices the students have and the and their families have in front of them right now. Yeah. So. Students, students, the ones that are choosing full remote, they have options on how they want to build their curriculum. And I would say we probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 right now as of today that chose to be fully remote. Um, chances are, if they're choosing fully remote, they've got some type of issue in their family where exposure isn't an option. So they're not going to come back to campus or they're international students. I have one student over in Greece, another one in China they're not getting back into the country for the fall. So, you know, we've got to be flexible with the curriculum there. Um, you know, but that, that full remote group is primarily groups that'll be off campus. Okay. Um, everyone else will probably have, I would say at least 50% to 65% of their schedule will be some level of face-to-face. That's like what I described earlier. Great. Half of their courses might be online and remote, depending on which major they're in. You know, you get into the health sciences, the applied health sciences, education. We got to, you know, some of it demands that we we get on the floor and and those skill-based activities, you need to, they're performance-based. Yeah. How do we take that remote? That's a tough, that's a tough lift. Yeah, definitely. Um, Going through, thinking back to, you know, March when this thing really, you know, obviously, you know, students were sent home at some point, I think right after spring break was the common uh, timeline for the colleges and universities. Give us just some insight as to how Springfield College operated from a leadership standpoint. You touched on it earlier where you think this is the way it's going to go and you kind of put your your plan of attack on paper and you start to get things in motion and then all of a sudden the rug's pulled out and it's starting from scratch, how, how has that situation been handled from a leadership standpoint at Springfield College? Because this is one of those things, like, you could talk about all you want, like expect the unexpected and have these contingency plans, but this is, this is real life. This is in theory. How has that gone so far? How would you rate, you know, the, the overall, everybody involved in the decision-making and why, and why would you say that, Ted? So, there, I think I can speak from my experience as a faculty Senate president, right? And when we think about faculty, the faculty role, our primary goal, our primary job task is to design and deliver the curriculum to meet the, out, the intended outcomes 
at the institutional level and within our majors. And in March, literally within eight days probably, we needed to take everything that was being taught in a highly um, close contact environment and move it into a full remote environment. And while we did that, we also had to maintain, a, a keep it, our eye on the ball when it came to policies and procedures that needed to be changed so that we could assure that students would be able to progress through the curriculum. So for example, um, you know about withdrawing from a class, yep. right? There's usually a deadline where you can withdraw from a class and not have it impact your, your, your total load. Wait, right? hold on, hold on, hold on. For full this, I never had to withdraw from a class. <laughs> All right? uh, throwing, shot, throwing under the radar shots right out of the gate. <laughs> <laughs> no, Danny didn't, Danny didn't But so we, we actually developed a, what's called a withdraw COVID. And a student could withdraw all the way up to the end of the semester and not have it impact them in a negative way. Similarly, we kept a back door in the software that if a student withdrew, but they wanted to keep attending the class, they could. Mm -hmm. And let's say they withdrew thinking, I'm not being successful in an online environment. But then all of a sudden they find out, hey, I got a B or a B minus. Sign me back up. We let, them, we let them come back in because we wanted to promote that there was a flexibility, that the, the important part here was their learning. And that's what, you know, we, we maintained our focus on that from a leadership perspective and our policies and procedures followed after that. Um, so that, you know, from a leadership perspective, and, and I guess the big piece was, you got to trust good people. Yeah. You know, you've got great faculty members. Um, they're all doing the best they can for me and teaching in my classes. I was meeting, you know, I, I teach mostly graduate classes now. Yeah. So I have once a week, three hours. Well, no one wants to listen to me for three hours in person, let alone three hours in a zoom meeting. So, you know, I, it, my courses might've, I, I might've dropped back to two hours, two and a half hours try to make some different types of activities and breakout rooms. It challenged the way that we taught um, in a lot of different ways, especially for someone who's an experiential educator. Yeah. What you know? uh, do you feel like going through that? Has that made you a better educator? And if yes, how? So, um, yeah, I think it sharpened me as an educator. And, and the reason I would say yes to the question, simply yes, is because it gets back to, the, the most fundamentals, like, what am I really trying to teach here? Right? It, it, what, how do I want students to think on a meta level? Yeah. And if I, you know, it, you know, like, we would select certain group initiatives, or we would select a certain uh, problem solving activity, because I knew it would fit the way that I wanted that student to think which would elicit the, the physical responses that I wanted. Well, now I've got to do that without the physical response. Yep. How do I create the online task that has the, the demands, the intrinsic demands to elicit the cognitive process that I want? And so, yeah, it sharpened me, I think, 
in, in some ways it's going to make going back to the classroom easier. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, we went through a similar, and it's probably a not, not as big of an urgent push to do it. Cause you had students who were you know paying to be educated and everything, but you know, we went through a similar uh, process of experiential team building and leadership development generally involves <laughs> being together in the same space and sharing equipment and sharing space and, you know, how the heck do you translate that to Zoom? And like you said, it brought me back to, you know, where do we, where, where's the intended finish line? Right. You know, what, what do we want them to walk away from the 90 minute or the two hour Zoom feeling like, yeah, we got this today. We experienced this today. We can take this with us back in the classroom or in the office. And then it's just a matter of, I, I like, I, I love the way you said it sharpens your skills. Like how, what do you put together? What type of experience do you put together where you might have 20 participants from 20 different States, yeah. you know, five, you know, three different time zones. And, 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 and how do you, how do you still get them to that same, you know, end point of that particular journey? It's, it's, it's an interesting process <laughs> and it has made yeah, being it, in person with people much more enjoyable. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it, if you can teach without the initiatives and the props and the activities and the challenge course and still engage them in the process that we're trying to, you're going to come out on the other end yeah. when you return back to that physical environment, you're going to come out on the other end better prepared. Um, and I, I think with that mindset, the, the, the digital, the virtual experiences, end up being for me, for me personally, when I started designing these concepts of how can we do a program that's about, you know, grit and mental toughness or perseverance, you know, when we don't have a ropes course or a zip line course, or, you know, this particular prop initiative, like the traffic jam initiative, which is sometimes can cause nightmares for groups. And in my mind, it was, God, this is going to be awful. It's going to be a dentistry every single time. And they end up, I think with that mindset, they, for me personally, they've turned out much better than I would have ever anticipated at the start of this back in, you know, mid-March, late March. We were playing around with a group initiative. Remember the 12 bits activity where you got, you got 12 bits of information and everybody has their own piece of that information and they've got to, they can only read what's on their bit of information and they have to pull it all together. Yep. And that's nice. To, you know, they can walk around and read their piece of paper Imagine if you've got breakout rooms now on Zoom yep. and they can go between breakout rooms and they have to find each other, put those pieces together. You can still run the same type of activity virtually. It just demands, it just demands that we, we break free of our dependency on the things that are very comfortable for us. And those are the physical props and activities. Yep. yep. Agree. And that's something that's been a, a recurring theme. I actually, in, in our first season, I, I had an episode with Jimmy Warnock and Kim Longabuco, both Springfield College grads. And one of the things that in both of their episodes that came up was as undergraduate students at Springfield College, those experiences to, to live just what you said, I think really shaped us as, you know, Kim's a principal of uh, Newtown High School now. Jimmy's doing great things as a physical educator up at South Windsor High School. Um, and, and being able to go through that, I remember in your class, I think it was the first lesson we taught to our classmates, right? We weren't teaching with real 
students yet. We were, you know, we were doing the, the model or the demo classes. And uh, I think you made each of us pick some sort of concept, whether it be communication or trust. And it was, you threw the equipment keys, or the equipment room keys to one of us and said, now go down there, find something, some equipment and make an experience that will get them to yeah. learn, you know, how to communicate better, how to trust more. And I, you know, to this day, I call, I call that the, the custodial closet team building method where, where it's, it's less about, you don't need a bag, you know, a, a bag of props that costs you $900 to, to teach that, right? You need a little bit of creativity and you need to know what the end objective is. Um, and then, you know, what are the, what are the parameters we want to place to make communication more difficult so that they see when we don't do these things, we struggle. And then you build them up and you provide the support and coaching to, Oh, if we communicate this way, <laughs> right. we get to the finish line. Yeah. Okay. I mean, thank you for that too. <laughs> well, it, it's one of those things because we all come into, I think teaching with this, this belief system about the things that I'll teach and the, and those beliefs are founded on how I learned them. Yep. So if I say, no, you got to you got to define what you're going to teach. Now go find equipment and build a new experience. Well, that's, that's breaking free from all of the baggage that you, is keeping you from achieving, becoming a better teacher. Yep. You know, it, it's, those are the fun things because I would have probably never come up with 90% of the things that you all came up with as students. Yep. Yep. Um, your son Hayden is going to be a sophomore second year. Yeah. Hayden's going to be a sophomore. Um, this he's year. your fir first out of three to go to, to Don the maroon. Yeah. Well, he's, a, he's our favorite now. <laughs> I always knew he was the smartest one, kind of. <laughs> it depends on how you define smart, I guess. How, um, <laughs> I got two questions. One, um, seeing him go through the virtual learning experience, uh, the back end of his first year, um, what were some of the struggles he faced? What were some of the things that you, you felt like he did pretty well at? Um, how, how was it for you as a parent to see him go through this thing that none of us have ever been through before, right? You know, school from home via computer. How did he do with that? How would, uh, what were some of the, the highlights and the lowlights for the, the young boy? Yeah, I'm going to say, I mean, I think the type of student we get at Springfield, the type of, of young person, you're choosing Springfield because of our philosophy, our humanics philosophy, and the way that faculty engage in developing high-quality relationships with the students, Right you've just ripped away those two things by when you, when you put yourself in a, a virtual environment. Um, and it was a big transition for him as a first year student, you know, coming out of football, uh, high relationship, high intensity fall. And now, you know, he's coming into out of his freshman year. You know what that is like um, first year football player, but then, you're moving into the spring and you're going to focus on lifting and gaining weight and all these other things. And it's all gone now. Yeah. And there's, there was a bit of grieving that goes on. You know, I, I looked at him and then I got Cole, who's my middle son. He was a senior graduating in engineering. And to see the two of them experience very similar things, because engineering, obviously, 
is hands-on. He's super hands-on, yeah. Yeah, he's building me mechanical engineering. He's building machines and all this. So it, it was a tough one. What I will say is the, the, the experiences that were high quality were the ones where faculty members continued to reach out and continued to stay in touch with those young people because I would take the first 30 minutes of my classes, Dan, that I was teaching, and we would just do a check-in. Mm -hmm. You know, because at that point, my class became an opportunity to, to make sure that their basic needs are being met. Yeah. Right? It, it, everything else becomes this, I'm still going to teach the content as we go through the class, but that first 30 minutes, where are people at? How are things going? Tell me about your family. You know, tell me the anxieties you're dealing with. Yeah, I have those anxieties too. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you got you to gotta come back to, this is a human discipline. You know, our, this was a, this is, this, if, we, if an education at Springfield isn't based in the concept of humanity and humanic, serving others, mm -hmm. if, if you didn't start your class by serving those students in that way, then you weren't teaching the way you should be teaching at Springfield College. Yeah. So I think that's where I saw the highlight, you know, I, the, the high points of this move was the empathy and compassion to continue to build those relationships because they're central to the learning that happens. Um, you know, the low points, I think there's, it, it, so much of it's out of your control. You know, as teachers, we, we like to, you know, well, we like to believe that most of what happens in a classroom is in our control, but the great teachers know most of it's not. Yeah. And, but as teachers, we like to think things are in our control. So to lose control of where my students were in the progression a little bit was a difficult thing. And I think I saw that in a lot of what Hayden experienced as well, you know, and then I think that graduating class from college, Cole's class, you know, Cole had a job offer before he graduated and it went away yeah. because they just, they just weren't going to hire. Yeah. Got another job offer. I think it was early June. It went away. They weren't going to hire. And, you know, that's a frustrating thing. So to see him, he just got great news. He's just got a job working with a firm up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, so he's really excited, enjoying it now, but he's a happier kid because he's working and that's what the last four years were about. So, you know, him, gotta, congratulations to Cole. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a lot of telling him, you know, you, what do you say? And, you know, you can only say so many times the jobs will be there. They're just on hold. Yeah. You know, take care of each other first at home and then the jobs will come. And as you, as you mentioned earlier, you know, there are so many things just on a daily basis, even prior to this whole COVID situation, we wake up, there are thousands of things that we have absolutely zero control over. And the more you let your, you know, energy and focus dive into that side of the spectrum, you know, it's easy to get down in the dumps and it, it's, it's hard to, you know, be motivated every day and, and, you know, like you said, if it, you know, in this instance, it's, Hey, take care of our family members, take care of yourself, be well, be healthy. 
um, you know, take care of the people around you. Like that, that's really at the end of the day during, you know, God, it's been six months now since this whole thing started, you know, that that's the mindset, I think, to stay out of that trap of negativity and it's, it's easy to get into. And I think we've all probably found ourselves in that spot over the, you know, the past six, I think it was probably mid April when I, it hit me like, you know, it was nice in the beginning to wear gym shorts and a golf shirt to work, you know, <laughs> it, uh, that got old pretty quick. Yeah. You know, you were talking earlier about grit and resilience, you know, and get back to some of Angela Duckworth's work and others, but I really think for us, for teachers, for certain group, you know, certain types of people, our whole job as teachers is to lessen ambiguity and yeah. risk sometimes in, in classrooms where adventure educators, our whole premise is I want to create more ambiguity and yeah. perceived risk. Right. Yeah. But now we're being asked to operate in probably the most ambiguous <laughs> and risky environment. Um, and, you know, and that's a big order for some folks out there. So when we think about all of the life skills and lessons we could learn to take away from this, that's really where it's at. You want to talk about, if we want to talk about how do I build resilience, how do I deal with this, with ambiguity? Because tomorrow we could get a whole new set of rules from the Department of Public Health, right? <laughs> or, you know, just so many different things. You touched on it earlier about the flexibility that the, the faculty and the leaders at Springfield has had. And, and, and you mentioned how the most important part is the, the, the students learning. To me, that's, you know, if you want to define leadership from a, an educator standpoint, that's it right there. Um, you know, you're not teaching for you or you shouldn't be teaching for you. You're teaching for the eight to 30 students you have in a classroom. And, and it's great to hear that that's been the common mindset. And, you know, I think with that mindset, when, and it's probably going gonna to happen, right? Something's going to change again. You know, I think it's, it's, it's safer to say that than we'll be back to normal in the fall. Um, I think with that mindset, when that adverse, next adverse moment comes up, you'll get there, right? You'll get through it. You'll, 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 you'll persevere through it. And it'll be, you know, the Springfield product that, you know, I personally look back on as some greatest moments of my life going into the, tw go ahead. Sorry. I, you just, you touched on something because going into this fall for us, like I've got a three to five minute welcome address. I have to do a convocation um, to the incoming students and their families and I don't know if I'm going to make friends in the administration or not, but I'm going to just put it out there and say, listen, no one's going to solve COVID for you. Yeah. Right. No one's, this is up to, it, it's up to you to be part of the larger solution. We can put the right pieces there. We can put in mitigation strategies, wear masks, um, you know, come to class once a week, but live stream it, but no one's going to solve the problem for us. We have to survive it and then excel within the conditions that are present for us, yep. you know, presented to us. And that's no different for a teacher or a student as we go, as we embark on the fall semester. Um, 
and and I think we've got to cut, you know, if we all come from that same position of how will we be resilient in the, all this ambiguity versus waiting for someone else to solve it for us, then we're going to, we're going to do a whole lot better this, yep. this semester. Yeah. Agree. What's, what's the thing you're looking most forward to, to, to being back on campus? Oh boy. <laughs> you know, I, I think. And don't say coffee from the dining hall. I mean, you're, you're you're something laugh. better than that. <laughs> You're going to laugh. It's, it's not the coffee. It's the conversation. It's the, you know, I, I miss the one-off conversations in the hallways. I miss the student walking by and, you know, asking about class tomorrow. Um, you know, I think, you know, what am I looking forward to? I'm trying to get back to some level of normalcy. I think like anyone else. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping to, I hope I find some of it, you know, but again, I don't know if I will. But that's, I think that's probably, if I had to pick the one thing, I'm, I'm looking to get back to some resemblance of normalcy in, the, you know, in my teaching and schedule. Yeah. A two-part question. What's, a, from your vantage point, a bit of wisdom for the teacher maybe at the public school level, right? So I'm not talking about the college level, but a teacher at the public school level. Um, in 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 getting i think men mentally physically emotionally prepared for the school year to start which is right you know again right around the corner yeah so i i wish i had the the silver bullet for all of them but i don't <laughs> but i i do have this right i've got a five-year-old nephew who's starting kindergarten and he's a ticket right <laughs> but I used I, I I would I would worry about him like is he gonna wear his mask when he goes to school and he, he started already. Yeah. I watched a group of five year olds the other day, and they were all they were all playing with the, wearing their masks like it was no big to do, and you know they were outside yeah. so the six feet social distancing if they're wearing masks and they're playing and doing their normal stuff. You know, statistically, they're there. I've talked with the epidemiologist about this. You know, yeah. I've looked at the shape guidelines. My best advice is, you know, just keep – you know, we talk about rules, routines, and expectations. These are flexible, adaptable young people, young humans, who we can create these routines and, and, and have those expectations, and they're going to rise to those – and it's going to become of their the the regular, you know, life at school for them. I yep. hope it doesn't last for long because I want to. I want them to see each other smile when they're swinging and chasing each other and playing ball. But you know, I watch it and they're 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 going to do all right. I think yep. the hard part's going to be the numbers. You know, the numbers and the the transitions from like he's going to do a week at home and a week at school. Um, I'm, I'm not worried about those weeks at school, you yeah. know, in smaller groups. What I, if I was a young teacher coming into the, out in the world, the professional world right now, or if I was looking to be an entrepreneur, which I'm trying to always think about teaching as an entrepreneurial act, right? Mm -hmm. We could be out there creating bubbles of, you know, and it's happening. 
five to eight kids that meet somewhere and we teach physical education to these five families. But these five families have to come together and say, we are going to stay in our own bubbles at home. And we could be doing this five days a week um, at home facilitators, call yep. it, right? You might go to a house and facilitate their school day, but also teach physical education in the backyard to a bunch of five-year-olds or 10-year-olds or yep. whoever. Um, you know, we're, we need to rethink the way education happens. For so many years, we hung our hat on, on online education, and we're starting to see some of the chinks in the armor. Yeah. Um, but there's an opportunity here that I hope we don't miss on, a, on an institutional and systematic level to really rethink what's important and how we get our job done. So see it as a time of, of, of innovation if yeah. you're a public school teacher. Not as ones of, not, don't see the hurdles in front of you. Um, maybe you don't have to jump over the hurdle. Maybe you can run around it. Yep. Yep. Um, and then on the other end of that, if you were speaking to a group of high schoolers or college students, well, you'll be speaking to a bunch of college students shortly. Um, if you had to drop a, a Ted France knowledge nugget on a, a group of high schoolers or middle schoolers right now about being successful in this, as you mentioned, the, the, this time of ambiguity and unknown and uncertainty, what would that be? Yeah. And I am still working on that. <laughs> it's probably mostly for the high school. You know, I've got a week before I have to speak at convocation, but <laughs> it's going to go something like this, right? Every group has some time in their life where it's their, their, their time to step up and personally lead. Mm -hmm. Right. Every, every individual experience is this. And I think right now you're, this opportunity is being given to every college student and every high school student. And you're either going to become a vector that will transmit a disease or you're going to become a vector that will transmit leadership. Mm -hmm. And you've got to make the choice. There's not a lot of gray area between these two tangents, you know, these tangents. Um, you've got to decide right now, which one are you going to be? Because for those college students coming back, you're, they're the difference between whether we stay open for 10 weeks, 15 weeks, or two weeks. Yeah. And we're seeing that play out in some of the news right now. I'm very optimistic at Springfield because I, I really believe if we are honest with our students and speak to them the way I just spoke to you, they're going to make that choice to be the vector that promotes personal responsibility and leadership in our community. Yeah. Um, is it going to be perfect? No, I'm not that I haven't spent, I've spent a lot of years in the ivory tower, but my tower is painted a little, it's got a, a tinge of um, gray in it, Danny. There's I'm some a, chips. There's some paint chips. It's, it's, it's chipping a little bit. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an idealist with a pragmatic streak. <laughs> oh man. Um, I challenge them, Dan. I throw yeah. it down. I, this is, this is a challenge. It's no different than any other challenge that we would put in front offer. And it's their choice to, yeah. to decide to take it on or not. And as you mentioned earlier too, I think the, the better, the, the leader in this instance, it's the, the teacher, the faculty, the administration at a, at a school or a, a college university, 
the stronger those relationships, yep. the easier it is to make that ask, to put that challenge out in front of them and say, hey, what choice are you going to make? Yep. And, and, and it's even easier than to say, you know what? I'm pretty darn confident in this group that a lot of them are going to make the, the choice that keeps us moving forward and not holds us back. Exactly. Backtracking. So that's the, the kind of the current status of, of, of what's happening at Springfield College. I appreciate the update. And, you know, not a lot of people are in on those conversations. So I think it's important to hear that, you know, no one's going through this right now and has a perfect solution. And if they said that to you, they're lying. You know, as you said before, we started run away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and listen, I could talk for the next two hours on you know, the testing that we've got in place with, yeah. you know, the Broad Institute. The, I could talk about a thousand little things that all had to be taken care of as we thought about how to deliver the curriculum. But, you know, I think what we, what we discussed are, is probably at the heart of it. Yeah. We're going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, I, the first class I had at Springfield College was Instructional Strategies. Mm with uh, Dr. Stephen Kulan and Dr. Stevie Chepko, who, who passed, uh, you know, recently. She's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, she was awesome. She was tough. Her probably, it was probably the first day of that class when I realized, like, this isn't going to be <laughs> what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't going to be, roll out a ball and open the newspaper and, and, you know, hope no one gets hurt in the 40 minute PE class. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have a, like, so that was the eye opener to me. Dr. Chepko came in, laid the hammer down on a bunch of freshmen who were expecting to teach, probably coach a sport and probably spend more of their time and energy on the coach, the sport they were coaching and yeah. just teach to, to have the coaching gig. Did you have a moment similar to that at Springfield College where you were like, oh, this is, this is different from what I was expecting? Oh, and sure. what did it do to you internally? Sure. I think well, – I believe most of, the, most of us that go into physical education, we know this from the literature, right, socialization yep. literature. You know, we're going in there because probably we, it, it's more of for sport continuation. Yep. Right? We want to continue to coach. And we see teaching physical education as this contingent that I have to work with in order, job. <laughs> yeah, in order to keep coaching. But in reality, that's your job. Yeah. The coaching is the side job. And, you know, for me, it, I had that come to Jesus moment with Gretchen Brockmeyer my <laughs> sophomore year. We didn't have instructional strategies when I took, you know, when I was there. And, you know, it was a, it, it was a very similar thing that to me. Shortly after my time at Springfield is when – instructional strategies came about and it was because of the literature yeah. we know what those early field experiences they're critical to challenging all of the beliefs that students come in with and then reorienting those beliefs around a technical culture that is professional and one that we want and rep want to represent at, at at springfield college so you know that that's i'm happy to hear you had that moment because that's the purpose of that class it was it was the the final nail in the wooden block from Dr. Chepko, and I don't know if Dr. Brockmeyer had a fancy nickname like this, but she she referred to herself as the weed whacker. Yeah, and she was That's just in a, like the, the kids who weren't gonna you know 
weren't going to conform to that mindset that it wasn't just roll out a basketball and hope for the best. She was, she, they were getting cut out pretty quickly. <laughs> the class my, went from like 30 to maybe like 18 after a couple of days of doc, Dr. Chepko. But she, <laughs> one of my favorite lines from Chepko is a student showed up to teach um, in, it, it was a peer teaching episode, showed up to teach wearing a pair, a, a, some sandals. And <laughs> Chepko promptly went up to the kid and said, are those sandals? And the kid said, yes. She goes, well, I'm just here to tell you that there's only one person that can teach in sandals, and that's Jesus. And I don't see you parting any seas, so go back and get your sneakers. <laughs> Scurried <laughs> along. He was out. <laughs> he, was out he, he hurried back with his tennis shoes and, and got to teaching his lesson. What? Uh, now, growing up as a kid – Again, this is something I talk about a lot because I work in outdoor adventure. I work in experiential education now, and that's my livelihood. Growing up as a child, I make fun of my father about this and my mother. They're like, we didn't, we didn't camp. We didn't fish. We didn't hike or backpack or any, like, cook outdoors. It was – I there were three boys in the house. So it was a lot of pasta that was, you know, boiled by my mother, and it was – a lot of football, basketball, baseball, maybe, maybe a little tennis, that type of stuff. Mm. And then going to Springfield is when my eyes were open to like, Oh, you could teach us stuff through a, a, on a canoe or, or on a ropes course or with Frisbees or whatever it might be. Were you into like the outdoor adventure type of stuff prior to going to Springfield? Like how'd you, how'd you make the jump from being a phys ed major to running East campus, the outdoor adventure center there uh, uh, up in Springfield? Yeah. So I think what, think about 1987 project adventure didn't start until 1972 yep. right so project adventure was probably about 12 years old when i went to college and so it was still fairly new yeah um in in the world there weren't you know there were ropes courses at camps maybe but people in my socioeconomic class didn't go to those camps <laughs> so i spent more time you know i did fish um, I, you know, I, I tried to hunt as much as I could as being an athlete, but that was hard. Um, camping, that's what we, we kind of did it for vacations when we, you know, when we went on vacation, but I wouldn't call myself an outdoor person. Yeah. Um, when I came to Springfield is really when I found East campus and the whole picture started to get painted a little brighter for me because, it was that same type of moment, like, wow, there's a, there's a big world out there and I can do a lot of things. And not that I ever want to lose my roots in sport. Yeah. Sport can be a vehicle to teach these life skills as much as the outdoors. Right. Um, we got to just think about it differently. It's not, we're not trying to prevent something. We're not doing an intervention like midnight basketball, but we are proactively saying that our program is going to embed these life skills and I'm going to teach for them explicitly and draw them out of the experience. You know, Al Petipas says it all the time, you know, sport is, is, isn't inherently good or bad. Sport doesn't teach you anything. It's, it's how the coach uses sport. It's how the teacher uses the outdoors. Um, so the outdoors do, doesn't teach us anything. Yeah. It, it's the process and the experience that is created socially in that context. Um, and that to me became very intriguing. And that's when, you know, I started mountaineering, ice climbing, whitewater kayaking, canoeing, you know, just 
you couldn't, I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. Now, uh, before I ask the next question, the, the, the concept that you just discussed from Al about, you know, the outdoors being the vehicle or sport being the vehicle, does that same mentality in your mind apply to a high school British literature class? Uh, or uh, or a middle school like pre-algebra uh, algebra course like how, yeah. how far does that go? It can go. Listen, in 1987, same year I started at Springfield, Lauren Resnick gave an address to the AERA, right? And in the, in her scholar address, she talked about experiential education, and she diam she 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 proposed. The, these diametrically opposed ideas about what does it mean to be in a, to use experiential education. Regular in-school learning tends to be highly um, decontextualized, mm -hmm. right? So we learn math concepts and we learn literature and we learn all these things decontextualized from life. Mm -hmm. Whereas experiential education, we learn through the contextualized experience and we make application to other areas. Yeah. It's flipping it upside down and really thinking about what it is, you know, that, that process. So, yes, I do think it can be done. It might be done easier in some areas than others. You know, when I think about STEM, math, I mean, you know, there, there's some obvious things. Like I could teach an entire algebra and geometry lesson and physics lesson in a mountain biking unit. Or like a racquetball court, probably, right? Racquetball, yeah. right? Yeah, geometry and racquetball, phenomenal. Yeah. But we've known about interdisciplinary education for a long time. It's just, do we separate those two classes or do we share one experience and draw out of that what it is that we want people to learn? Yeah. Um, so... Where was the geometry when you, you we played racquetball? One of the, one of the most... Brutal games, brutal sports I've ever been involved with is cutthroat racquetball, which is three people on a court and you yeah. being one of the three. Yeah. Where was the G you used to pelt like Jake Treadwell or I, like you weren't aiming for walls. I'm convinced. Where was the geometry there? Did you miss that class as a in, you know, 1988 sophomore at Springfield or what? No, because – I wanted you. I wanted the two of you flinching every time you heard the sound of the ball coming off of my racket, which meant I didn't have to be as accurate in my calculation of the geometrical angles, because you were usually ducking or hiding when I hit the ball. So, <laughs> strategy is also um, part of the play. <laughs> it was a, a different type of experience that we learned from. I think I still have a couple of welts to prove it too. <laughs> um, there was a story oh that you used to tell quite a bit about uh, uh, a backpacking trip you were leading, mm -hmm. leading from the back of the line, and you, the, all the skills were taught prior to this trip, and this was really like the moment of application. Like go out there in the field and you know show off the skills that you learned, the the nav skills and the trail reading and and everything. And there's a story you tell of a, a trip that went out and there was a, a essentially a the fork in the trail. Yep. And you're standing in the back of the line knowing that they are in the process of making the wrong decision and they're in the process of eventually having to set up camp at night in the dark and possibly dealing with some weather. 
and you let them make that decision. Yeah. Like yeah. why? Why? Well, because so when I approach the trip, right, people, you, you would think, okay, the trip is the application. The trip is the moment for my performance evaluation on their planning, their risk management planning, their leadership, their decision-making, all of the skills associated with leading yourself in that group. If I make the call at any moment on that trail, with the exception of safety, yep. right, someone's going to get hurt. I'm stopping it and I'm playing, you know, that that's where I'm now the, the leader and not the teacher. Yeah. But the fork in the road that that trail did for, did, did fork. And I knew that the campsite we wanted was to the right. And it was about a mile up and we, that's where we were, should have been going. But there are moments in every trip, like you think about it as a bunch of quizzes that I'm stringing together. This was their moment for, for map reading and land navigation. And so I let them in communication. There was a one kid in that group who was, who kept saying, no, we need to go over here. (laughs) And he was overruled by the group because of their lack of process and communication. And they didn't weight his voice equally in that, in that discussion. So they looked at me and I said, I'm going to follow you. And I followed them and we hiked way out of the way. And they finally, we had to backtrack because yeah. there was no way to get back to the campsite. Um, you know, and then, then the next quiz was setting up the equipment and setting up your campsite in the dark, which raised it a little bit more. But, you know, I knew where both trails went. I think that's where, you know, I, I've said it in class before. If I'm the teacher, or the leader or the facilitator of anything, I should not be on the adventure. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm experiencing a sense of adventure while I'm leading that trip, it's probably a bad day at the office. Little, the risk is not as perceived as you'd like it to be. <laughs> so just one of those moments, man. You, you, I, I was not on an adventure there. I knew where we were going. I knew where they were choosing to go. And in my head, I said, okay, I know that I can follow them and we're going to be all right. And we can turn around and get to where we need to be. But, you know, at that point, it's not my position to solve that problem for them. Yeah. You take away the thought process and, 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 and take away all the accountability. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about if, if I make that decision there, then I am responsible for their learning. Yeah. You're, you're, you're a trip guide. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what, I, that's, that's not what it was about. They're responsible for their learning. Yep. What, uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you didn't do the debrief that night. No. <laughs> how, 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 how'd that debriefing process go the next day? Once kind of, uh, everybody got a, probably a couple hours of shut eye in. As you expect. I mean, they're <laughs> angry at you for not making the decision. But then, you know, you process around. Now, this was many years ago. I can't give you the exacts. But, you know, then you process towards, you know, whose responsibility is this? And yeah. who made the decision? Did anyone say that they, we, you should go right instead of left? Um, why wasn't that voice heard? How would you approach this, you know, as we head out today, when we experience the same situation again, how are you going to approach it? And, you know, it, it, 
it ended up being probably one of the best classes I taught, you know, yeah. it, with the exception of Ben and I led a trip in the last three years, four years, where on in, in a matter of three hours, we experienced beautiful sunshine, <laughs> rain, hail, and then two inches of snow. And on the ridge that we were supposed to hike up to, probably 50 to 60 mile an hour winds. Come on. Yeah, legit, <laughs> legit. And, the, and we were coming off a bare mountain, in, in not a huge mountain in Connecticut, but in, in, it was waterfalls coming down. And we literally had to sort of, I, we didn't make the decision, but we definitely gave them, okay, here's the reality of the environment you're in right now. You're in Sage's Ravine. If we climb up to the Laurel Ridge, you're going to get 40, 50 mile an hour winds blowing right out in, into the shelter. Right now you're in the ravine and there's tent platforms that you're sitting on. Um, you know, we, we put all, all, but, and we just said, but you have to make the decision. And even with all that information, they were like, well, what should we do? They didn't want to, they didn't want that responsibility. Did, did they end up, did they end up making the call? Did you and Ben cave? Or I, I, no. Knowing you guys, there's no way you did, right? No, we would have walked up into the 40, 50 mile an hour winds and had the most horrible freaking night ever <laughs> keep trying to keep everyone warm. <laughs> and and, it, and, and it, by now it's snowing, right? <laughs> and we, and it's not a winter backpacking trip. So oh, it's an active they, situation. <laughs> they made the right call. You know, they, they did. And, that was a good debrief too about, you know, and they talked about, well, we wanted to please you. You're the, you know, we planned this trip. So we wanted to execute this trip because that was our grade was executing the trip. And at that moment, it sort of flashed to them. No, your grade is about your decision-making to not go up on that ridge. Yeah. Technically they did up, execute the trip. Had you gone up onto yeah. that ridge, your grade would be worse. Because that, was the, that was a bad decision. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, you mentioned earlier, you, you, you took over running Camp Massasoit, which is the summer day camp at East Campus. Pretty young, right, in your career? Yeah, I was, I was 23 when I was hired as a faculty member. Um, and I was running the outdoor center outdoor pursuits, the day camp and teaching the outdoor rec curriculum. How, and again, I, having known you now for since 1998, 99. Yeah. Again, a story I've heard before about bolstering what Camp Massasoit was, right? So you had a bunch of undergraduate students that worked there, maybe some graduate students. Yeah. Give us some insight into the early years of Massasoit uh, from your vantage point as a leader, recruiting campers to come, training staff. What were some of the leadership challenges that you faced really early on in your professional career there? And how'd you get through those challenges? Um, just to set the table, I guess that what I would say is you got to understand Camp Massasoit when I took over is, was a day camp. It was losing about $70,000 a year. There's no way a day camp should lose money. Yeah. Ever, ever, ever. Um, so we went right back to the beginning. Like, what's the philosophy of this camp? How do we distinguish it from other camps? And we decided that that was going to be through experiential learning, 
um, and primarily outdoor activities. You know, we did canoeing, we did Project Wild, we did the challenge course, shelter building, outdoor cooperative games, you know, all, all of that stuff. But it was, we didn't, we did very few. I, I wouldn't say we, disc golf was probably the closest tradi to traditional sport as we had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we stayed true to that. The other thing I did was I went back and said, I'm going to hire physical educators and recreation majors. And we're only going to have four activity blocks a day. We're not going to have the traditional eight half hour, 45 minute blocks. And the reason I said that was I didn't want to quote Judy Plasek. I did not want a camp that was busy, happy, and good. Yeah. You know, I didn't want kids every 40 minutes transitioning to a new environment. I wanted deep learning. I wanted deep relationships. And that meant that I had to hire better staff and trust them to program at a level that I really, that I had expectations for. And that's what I did. I, I put the right people in the room, you know, in, at, at the camp. Yeah. Now I hired program directors for swimming, boats, challenge course, and Project Wild. But every day, a group only went to two of those courses, those two of those programs. And then the other two blocks, the counselors did the programming, which was different than a lot of other camps that I had experienced, where the counselor just kind of moved kids from place to place where there was a, a, a activity leader that ran everything. Yeah. Um, so from a leadership perspective, I think, you know, for me, it was kind of easy because I knew what I was getting. I was teaching these kids in class. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, you know, I'm teaching them how to teach the way that I want camp to be taught. So now I would cherry pick the best teachers. <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're going to go down this rabbit hole, but, you know, that's what I did for 12 years with laces yeah and yep. you know and, and did it at not in a camp but in a community-based program um, which still had elements of camp though that was one of the coolest things about that yep. that summer program was that it wasn't just uh it wasn't a traditional summer camp it wasn't some sort of academic camp it was a little bit of everything well i think we used to talk my, my advice to the staff at laces was you know, I, I don't want this to be school because mm -hmm. um, it's not school, but it's not your traditional camp either because there's an overnight component. There's a there's a day camp component. But then at the same time, when they were doing their problem solving activities, I used to tell you all, you know, I should see your fingerprints on the final project, but I shouldn't see a stranglehold. Yeah. You know, because that's the facilitation side of it. You know, I you it's. It's partially when you see someone, when I watch you do your craft, I would hope that I see my fingerprints as a teacher on what you do professionally. Yeah. But I don't want you to be me. You know, you got to make it your own. Yep. Which was something, again, going back to the experience at Springfield College, this is something Jimmy Warnock and I talked about a lot. Uh, the first time I saw you in front of a freshman camp class was my freshman year. And you were the, the director of outdoor pursuits. 
used to be called freshman camp. Now it's outdoor pursuits. Yep. And I witnessed you standing in front of a group of how many students attend typically, Teddy? Uh, at that time, at that time, there was probably 280. Yeah. 300. And this, this is something Jimmy Warnock and I kind of marveled at was we, both got to see you stand in front of a group of roughly, you know, uh, you know just under 500. We'll, we'll round up for you a little bit. <laughs> First year students who are required to stay in Springfield on campus, camp out for an extra week after their first year when a lot of them are dying to just go home and be with their high school friends. And you, you, comm- you would command a crowd without raising your voice. And that to me was the first – that sticks with me now because I find myself in spots where sometimes very rarely I'm in, in front of, you know, 400 people, but it's, you know, is screaming and yelling going to be the best solution to getting everybody's attention right now for 30 seconds. And going back to that as a, as a leader, you want to see your fingerprint, not the stranglehold. I would say that's one of the fingerprints was, you know, I'm not going to, I can't be you, you can't be me or it can't be anybody else, but, there's a way to do this and to get everybody engaged without screaming like a madman yeah, and losing your voice and being dominated by 350 kids. You know, I, well, I think we've, you and I have probably talked about this next statement a little bit, but you know, in adventure education and camping and all this other stuff, we talk, people want to make it this um, magical or mystical thing, the Mm -hmm. art of leading, right? Yeah. We can teach people. There's a science to it. Right? There's behaviors that we can teach leaders to do. And most often from my perspective is we don't do those alone. Mm-hmm. I was the camp director, but <laughs> I probably had the least amount of power as anyone. No, seriously, because yeah, I had this positional authority, but at the end of the day, if I could get, all 75 staff members to buy into the vision, philosophy, and behaviors needed, then, then they were buying into me and it made my messaging easier. Mm-hmm. Right. But you know, that's where, how did I, how do you gain that capital, that human capital? It's being authentic. It's mm-hmm. being true. It's being, you know, I'm the first I'm the first one to pick up a rope and belay, you know, or to set up a tent or to do dishes at, in camp, even though I'm the director. Yeah. Because I'm part of the team. So going back to laces, which when it started, it was Springfield leaders of tomorrow. Slots. Yeah. Yeah. A little different, a little different change, change of pace. We had, uh, up to, you know, usually it was 40 to 50 students from Springfield, Mass, lit, uh, come to camp for day camp week one. Yep. And then stay in the dorms and essentially live the life of a college student, minus the partying. Correct. Uh, in, in a dorm on campus there. And Teddy was the director of that program for, I don't know how many years. 12, 13. 13 years. And I think, I, I think I might've worked with you for five, four or five of those years. Yeah. I think um, it was five. <laughs> this is a leadership challenge. How do you handle when campus police comes knocking on the dorm, <laughs> the front door of the dorm saying, 
do you have all your kids in the dorm rooms? And you say, yes. <laughs> when unbeknownst to just about everybody, except for these three or four kids, they were, and I'll credit their in innovation, rappelling out of, I think, a second floor window using bed sheets. Yeah. Is that, is that true? <laughs> I was there for that too. This isn't a blame thing. This was, that was on Lake both Side of the Hall. watches here. <laughs> yeah, Lakeside Hall. Um, oh yeah, no, that's that's where that's that, that's where the positional authority comes into play, Dan. Um, so, campus police. If campus police is knocking on my door, first step is whatever they're about to tell me is probably true. They know the, <laughs> they know the answer before they ask the question. So if they ask, <laughs> you have all your campers, then the answer is definitely no. <laughs> Step two is tell me names of said campers, because I'm assuming you got them if I don't. <laughs> Step three is who the hell's responsible for these three knuckleheads <laughs> on that floor? And then step four is find the parent's phone number. <laughs> so we there can were, have, so we can have a conversation. There were a handful like 1130 at night, uh, phone calls that yeah. were picked up by not so happy parents on the other end. Not yeah, a ton of them. I'll say this though. Over 13 years, there's only one kid that didn't complete the full two weeks. Yep. Yep. You know, and at that moment, we're not, you know, we weren't going to cut those three loose. That would have been the easy thing for us for our jobs, but that's not being a responsible educator. You know, it, you know, props to them for tying the right knots. Yeah, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, thank God we weren't in International Hall. <laughs> they were only two floors up. <laughs> now, listen, it's scary. You know, you because ultimately you are responsible. You know, I the phone calls I would get when a kid went. You know, I can remember Karen Baglini and uh, Josh leading a trip and um, up to Mount up Mount Colden Colden Lake in the Adirondacks and getting a call in July that a kid was going hypothermic because of a rainstorm. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, you tried to talk through and I'm like, listen, she if she's hypothermic. There's nothing I can do sitting here in Brimfield. Yeah. You're there. And they just needed to hear that. Yeah. And I trusted them and they, they did what they needed to do. And they got, you know, got her warmed up and she was going to be all right. It wasn't a win. If it was a winter situation, it would have been different, but you know, you worry as a leader, but again, I come back to for as much as the of headaches as a lot of you caused me, <laughs> I trusted you explicitly when it came to professional judgment and making improving the human condition for the young people we were trusted to lead yeah um and that's again i think something if we could get everybody together who spent a summer or more more than one summer on the laces or slot staff you know one of the things i'm most grateful of is opportunities like that yeah. like you could only get so much in a eight and a half month school year and then you couple in exams and, and vacations and um you know you were one of those people obviously you know mike michael bolden at east campus when i was there was one of those guys but whether it was you know running a summer program for nine weeks or you know working a group on you know i think one of the earlier groups i worked was uh 
skate to ski camp. Yeah. I, I belayed for a couple hours in, in yeah. Judd Gym. It was about 9,000 degrees in there. Holy cow. Um, but there were these great opportunities that were, you know, put in front of you and you either took them or you didn't. The beautiful thing, though, right, is when you think about all those opportunities, each one of them, I don't care if you're a phys ed major, athletic trainer, think of Chelsea Staney mm-hmm. or um, Rakan, who's yep. a lawyer, right? We've got doctors, uh, <laughs> Alex, Shalou, yep. right? We, we, people who came through the program as undergrads. Whatever you experienced facilitating skate to skate, at some point you could take away something and say, this is how I'm going to be a better physical educator because of it. Yep. Rakan could take something away and say, I'm going to be better as a lawyer because I dealt with this, you know, families in this way. Yep. We all could take something away from that shared experience. And at the end of the day, we all became better community leaders because of it, which is going to strengthen the capacity for us to create more protective factors around young people as we grow. Yeah. And, 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 empower them to do the yeah. same thing when they're in our shoes. You would hope. Yep. Yep. You would hope. Um, we're getting close to the finish line. This is Dr. Ted France. Most of us know him as Ted or Teddy. I don't think you, you never, you never, we never had to call you doctor. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, great friend. It, it, you know, he doesn't do it as much as he used to, but you know, in my opinion, the best experiential guy I've ever been around and that's not, there's no, no debate around it. So, uh, thanks for checking us out, Ted. You were on the home stretch right here. Tell, tell us a little bit, cause this is in addition to your work in the, the physical education and health education department. You also do some work with the youth development and research, and you've done some uh, consulting with the first tee of America. Tell yep. us a little bit about that and why you got involved in doing that. So the First Tee is a youth development organization that uses golf as a platform um, to teach life skills. Uh, I haven't done as much work with them in the last year. Um, you know, we still do some, some consulting around their youth, youth summit that Al Pettipa and I helped design. But um, the whole idea is education through sport, mm-hmm. right? And we're teaching life skills through sport. And it sort of lends to what I said earlier, sport, the game of golf doesn't teach you anything. It's, it's the relationships and how with the adults a significant adult role model that draws out the learning with the child and the youth. Um, How did I get into it? It really probably goes back to my early years of experiential learning and then coupled with my background in motor learning and some of the, you know, the neuroscience stuff is how I started with the first T um, and working with their national program to train coaches uh, over and over. But, um, you know, it, it, it's probably one of the model youth development through sport programs that are mm-hmm. out there. Um, you know a little bit about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Done some work with the first T. Connecticut is always part of uh, – rally for bully free communities that empower is, is part of as well. And on one side of a field, you'll have, you know, middle schoolers, elementary schoolers learning how to hit golf balls and learning how to keep a safe distance. So you don't get smashed in the face with a three wood. Yeah. And then on the other side, you got, you know, pipeline and, and, and some of the other prop initiatives going on. Um, and again, it gets back to 
you know, the experience is the vehicle to get some sort of message across coupled with the relationship with the, the adult leaders that will help the, the learning actually happen. The last in, in the, the, I think it was probably about three years ago, we had an article coming out, Al, Liz Mullen and myself, but we did some research to look at um, how do you measure the quality of a relationship between a child, a youth and an adult? Yeah. Right? Because we know if you look at the literature that's come out of America's promise or, you know, a lot of, a lot of the big think tank groups, they keep coming back to high quality relationships. So we set out to sort of quantify that and measure it. And we yeah. did we developed a survey and there's three factors that contribute to a high quality relationship. The youth believes that you are empathetic to who they are in their situation in life. Now that doesn't mean you feel bad for them. It means that you they believe you understand who they are and their needs. Mm-hmm. That's step one. Step two is um, high positive expectations. And this is, this one can really be a double-edged sword because high positive expectations doesn't mean that you set goals for them. It means that you help them set achievable goals themselves. And what we know is you can't even begin to think about set, you know, helping someone set those high positive expectations for themselves until you have the, em- the empathy is built. Yeah. It's actually contraindicated and you could damage the relationship if you do the high positive expectations too soon. Mm-hmm. You've got to, they have to believe you understand them before you engage in the second part. And then the last part is advocacy, which, you know, you hear different organizations talk about gateway adults. Well, an advocate is somebody who opens up the door to new experiences and new people um, beyond themselves. You know, this relationship and these parts, these three parts, you know, we could apply them to mentoring relationships. We can apply them to protective relationships in youth development. Um, all sorts of, of different types of relationships, but we believe, and when I say we, Al, myself, Alan Cornelius, Liz Mullen, you know, we believe that the, we should be able, we, we're starting to be able to measure these, which would then be, help us create better training opportunities for adults that are coaches and teachers. Yep. Yep. Um, the activity uh, the initiative, whatever you want to call it in plain sight, Mm. one of my favorites it's same here i'm that's and that's the reason why i'm i i took that from you just like i think everything in adventure you kind of or in, in really any teaching you take something from somebody else and you twist it and turn it and make it your own and absolutely but within plain sight i i, I have probably about as many of of project adventures and high fives like facilitation books and all that the, the activity books and where how'd you where's where'd that come from because it's not in any of those like i I credit you so i I, you know i don't know if i've been doing it wrong but no dude i i've never (laughs) seen it published anywhere in a book yeah okay i you probably can find it if you google it online somewhere and someone's put it out on the internet but um it's really been more i saw it someplace and just picked it up i can't even remember where it was years ago um but I've never seen it published anywhere, Dan. You're right. Neither have I. And in my work, like, again, I get to, I have the pleasure of working with different schools. And a lot of times the, you know, the PE teacher at the school is, is one of the people that's chaperoning the, you know, this trip and this experience. And 
either I get asked the question of like, what, where the heck did you find this activity? And I was like, some guy from Springfield, <laughs> I took it from him. I'm, you know, or it's, or someone says, Oh yeah, I saw somebody else run that, but it's not like, like pipe, if you break out pipeline, 99% of the audience is like, Oh yeah, it's pipeline. Yeah. Are we using marbles or golf balls? You know? Um, but that in plain sight is, so, you don't. You need a black pen and and, and like a, a rope and a bunch of random things and yeah yeah take things out of a closet again. It's one of those go. Oh, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> hey, so I've got a question. I, I, so I don't know if you were in the class. The dogs are barking, Dan. That's all right. Let's uh, up your podcast. No, it's it's audience. We have audience now. Live audience up in uh, New Hampshire there at the, at the France household. Yeah. So, um, I we were in Judd Jim one one day for class. And I don't know if you were there or not, but you know, do you remember the old Florex mats they used to roll up for gymnastics in there? Yeah. Okay. So I decided one day there was three Florex mats rolled up. They were huge too. Oh, they did not wrap your huge. arms around them. Yeah. Well, they got to be two feet wide <laughs> and 30 feet long. Right. So they're these huge rolls, but you can fit a person into the middle of those. So what I, what we did was I said, we're going to have a race around the gym. And you've got to roll the Florex mat, but you can only roll it when there's somebody in the middle. <laughs> and everybody in the group has to take a turn being in the middle. I thought it was a great initiative. And it turned <laughs> out to be a really cool initiative. Because do you know that if you roll these mats in one direction over and over again, depending on which direction they're facing, the roll will actually get tighter <laughs> or it'll get looser. <laughs> So we started the race and one group I look over and the kid in the middle, they can't get him out because they rolled him too tight. His face is turning purple. Yeah. <laughs> the other group, their mat is falling apart because they're rolling it the other way and it's just become, it's coming unraveled. So what they figured out is you've got to spin the mat after so many times, you know, a time, one loop around the gym to then start rolling it up again or loosening it up again. It turned out to be one of the best group initiatives that I ever, ever used. <laughs> and nothing but some gym mats. Yeah, I, we literally, I literally yeah. walked in and I was like, hey, look at those. And let's get, I, I bet you we could roll those. I'm like, imagine if we had to roll them up Rally Hill. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not taking them to Rally Hill. <laughs> and I'm like, but I bet you we could roll and, and push someone around inside. And then we started doing that. And then I'm like, I bet you if we could race and see how many, you know, how, who can do it the quickest, but everybody's got to take a turn in the middle. Of course. So. That reminds me of uh, Dr. Evans' uh, adapted phys ed grad class. It was the wheelchair races around campus. Yeah. 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 Um, Dr. Evans. She's doing the, well. I still see her. Oh, she's dynamite. She, she hasn't had a grass cutter like me since uh, 2007. So. The town of Long uh, Property values went up, Dan, when you started when you stopped cutting. I started grass. cutting, yeah, in yeah. the skill shorts. Uh, <laughs> my first, uh, Worcester Academy was the first, and I think you actually paid me for this gig. And you, you, you took good care of us, uh, Johnny and I. Johnny and I worked with you. You took good care of us throughout, and um, we showed up to Worcester Academy. I think it was myself and a couple undergrads, and and maybe John Gibney and you, and the whole ride. You had this plan laid out and and i might be exaggerating the story but this is how it plays out in my mind is the initial plan was that you were going to get the thing started 
and then we were going to split into smaller groups and we were each going to have our own group and rotate through these stations. And we set up and the group arrives and it was, Hey, I'm Ted. Dan's going to lead the first activity. And yeah. it, after I cleaned up the mess in my shorts, I think I got my way through it. Cause it was the first one. Yeah. And I, I at the time, I, I think I probably swore at you a lot in the ride home, but looking back on it, I appreciate that level of spontaneity and that, Hey, go out there and, and do it. And we we've got your back. If you, if you, if you mess it up, if you fudge it up too bad, but go out there and do it. D- does that, do you still carry that mindset at time? Not in all situations, obviously, but is that part of your arsenal as an educator, as a leader? So, so you use the word spontaneous. <laughs> you felt like it was spontaneous. But John and I had talked already. <laughs> it was a setup. <laughs> that, that was decided before we had left Springfield. <laughs> so, no, I think, listen, I, I would never put someone in a position where I felt like they were over their head. And I hope that any student that I worked with, if I threw them to the fire, which, you know, if a lot of you feel that way, in my opinion, it wasn't really a fire. Yeah. Like, it was an opportunity and a level of challenge that created stress for you. But at the same time, you're going to be a teacher in a public school someday. Some principal is going to walk in and say, Hey, by the way, you don't have half of the gym and you still have to teach your lesson right in the hallway or, you know, it, think about all of the different things that we've dealt with and yeah. If we can't deal with those things, that's, that's reality. You know, it's not this lily white world. Um, you know, Larry Locke in an underground paper written in 1975 talked about, um, he, he used the teaching that, long story short, what he said was, is we need to teach students, future teachers in the realities of what happens in physical education. Yes. And if we're not preparing you for the realities of what physical education really is, and if you can't just, you know, we want you to survive in those realities, but I want you to excel in those realities. We, that means we got to teach differently in teacher education. Yeah. And listen, you, you could handle it then you could probably handle it more of it now, but <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, no, seriously. I, I you know, <laughs> You and John were tough. You were always out to pick on the young guy at the time. What is, uh, what's in store with you? The light, you got a little bit of summer coming up here before it gets real again. What's in store for you the last couple days of uh, summer? Are you going to be prepared for this big speech? Are you going to wing this big speech? Are you going to write it down? What, what, what do we, what do we got going on? I'm going to write this one down, but um, yeah, I haven't, I, while well, I've been in New Hampshire at the farm for, you know, since, I, I went home for probably a week and a half, but uh, Karen, you know, works at Shriners Hospital. Um, Tuck's back in Boston, my oldest son. Cole's down in Manchester, but he's commuting up here. It's a, it's a long commute. Um, yeah. And Hayden's back in Springfield because he got some work re, uh, framing a house with a guy. But um, Karen, Karen was out of work for quite a while, and we, you know, we were up here, but my days were full, you know. Yeah. I, like even today, I called you around two thirty, excited that I didn't have anything at the rest <laughs> of the afternoon. Um, I've got one more weekend. Karen's coming up Wednesday. We're going to spend the weekend together. 
I was hoping to get a weekend alone with my wife this summer. And I did, you know, I, I don't think that's going to happen because I think Hayden and Cole are both coming up. So there goes nice. my plans, man. You can send Hayden and Cole down to Connecticut. We got a bunch of trees that need moving. They're both pretty big. I saw a video of Hayden like bench pressing logs. So send them down. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to get them big. Uh, So that's this weekend. And then I'm back at school. You know, I got to get down to school for uh, some of the pre-moving stuff and prepping for convocation. And we'll get this weekend and then that's good. We'll be all right. I'll, I'll find some time somewhere. Karen's a saint. If Karen listens to this, she's a a saint. She's been a saint as long as I've known her, as long as I've killed the plants that I was supposed to water the first time my house sat, uh, as long as I put three-inch – I'll blame this one on my brother, Matt, but three-inch divots in their hardwood floor for trying trying to refold the uh, You guys freaking destroyed – you destroyed more in both of my houses. (laughs) I found two – I own two houses, you know, the first one and the second one. You guys, the Jasco boys have destroyed more of my houses than my three children, probably. Well, you know, it was, I felt it was my duty as a, you know, as your grad assistant at the time. I I grew up with, with, you know, my two younger brothers. My parents raised three boys that were into athletics, that ate a lot, that liked a rough house. And I didn't think you and Karen were prepared at the time. So we had to... (laughs) Trust me, we weren't. We should have listened to Tony and Donna a little more. <laughs> um, my favorite house-sitting moment was you were away, and I, my brother and a couple friends stayed at, out in your place in Brimfield, and um, we, it was cold. We started a, a fire in the, oh, yeah. uh, in the, the den or the, the, the living room there, whatever you want to call it, and <laughs> I woke up at like 3 in the morning, and uh, Black Hawk Down was on. I'm like volume 70 and there was just smoke in the room and it was <laughs> yeah, the flu. You undid, you undid the flu and you closed it. Dude, never mind that one. You called me one day and asked me, Hey, do chickens just drop dead? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, what are the chickens? We had, we had 12 chickens at the time. And you're telling me that this chicken had a heart attack and just there's dropped. A, there's there's dropped. 11 now. <laughs> I'm like, Danny, chickens don't just have heart attacks. You must have hit it with the car or something. And then I'm like, you, you asked me what to do with it. I said, you pick it up and go throw it in the compost pile. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm not touching that chicken. Yeah, experiential learning with Ted France. It, it, was, uh, it was a mix of burying animals. It was a mix of clearing out smoke in 38-degree weather. It was a mix of late-night Tina burritos and Mountain Dew and Red Bulls and wouldn't have it any other way, Teddy. I love you. I, I was mortified that I killed Karen's plants. And, and to this day, it's still – anytime someone asks me to water the plants, I politely decline. <laughs> so I don't have a, a green thumb. But uh, you guys are the best. I, I thank you for, uh, for a bunch of great experiences as a college student, as a grad student with you, and, and as a professional working alongside with you. And really appreciate you helping uh, – kick off season two of the lead with empower podcast if you want to learn something about leadership find this guy have a conversation with him read one of his many articles that are out there research articles if you can understand half of it i'm proud of you Ah. uh you're the man teddy thank you so much yeah and thank you and you know i'm really proud of the great work you guys are doing at empower you know i i it's a lot. I can remember when you first were heading out on this, and I was like, "Wow, he's got a long journey ahead of him." And boy, you you've done it better than most 
that are out there. So keep up the great work. You're making a difference. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Hey, that's the first episode of the Lead with Empower podcast, season two. Dr. Ted France, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next Tuesday for episode two, where we are joined by my great friend, Mr. James Lightfoot out of Springfield, Mass. Be safe. Get after it. Go do something that makes yourself a little bit better and makes somebody else around you a little bit better. Talk to you soon. Have a great one. Great leadership may look and sound different. However, there are common threads that connect all tremendous leaders. They are passionate about those that they lead. They do that which brings out their best and the best in those around them. And they never take the easy way out because the exceptional will never come from easy.